This is Camila Dare. Welcome to A Lifelong Practice, where we explore issues surrounding living and dying. Today I'm with Benigne Moshe from Dublin, Ireland. We'll be discussing her book, Love in the Time of Broken Heart. And I wanted to let the audience know that we are in a quaint little cabin on the Pecos River in New Mexico. There's a fire in the background, so you'll hear some popping noises, and that's what that is. I wrote this book, Love in a Time of Broken Heart, uh, very much out of uh, my own experience. About uh, maybe five, six years ago, I, uh, I suffered a relationship breakup, which really, really shook me to my roots. Now, um, I am a therapist, as you know, and um, I had written uh, earlier books. But, and this book started out as being uh, something about relationships and about the inner marriage. But as I was writing it, it became a spiritual journey for me because it turned out to be a different book than the one I started. Um, and, and I found that it, it really took me into a very, a very spiritual place about our search for love, the universal search for love, and how when we're uh, searching for... It's like the inner drive to wholeness is reflected in our um, search for the right person, uh, you know, for a relationship. I went to the mountains of the Sierra Nevadas in Spain for a while and uh, to, you know, really uh, connect with what was happening... Um, and then I finished the book in Ireland a year later in my own home by the sea. So I think that it's a book which I'm very pleased with. I mean, I feel that it's, I'm very connected with it. Um, but it's, it's really to try and uh, learn about how we grow through suffering, through suffering the heart pain that love can, uh, can bring in us and also the positive side of, of heartbreak, that it opens the heart. And the ultimate reason, I mean, heart pain, compassion is where heart pain is meant to lead us, period. So from that perspective, it, it's very much a book which, yes, is very grounded in relationships, and there's lots of stories about people in it and, and patterns of relationships and looking at how our childhoods influence how we relate. At the same time, I think it's also about um, endurance and suffering and the opening of the heart. In your book, you talk about how suffering builds endurance that is the soul stamina that creates spiritual muscles. This is not a belief that is popular in modern spiritual circles. And it intrigues me, and it's something that as a hospice person and somebody who's been around death and dying, I can also relate to. So could you please talk a little more about um, that concept? I think that it's something that's coming in, though. I think that um, there's an understanding level, because all the other stuff that's going on isn't doing it for us. And you'll find that the people who who have reached this dark night of the soul and 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 endured this, uh, and in your own work, you 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 know, you, I know um, that this is something that you're f- familiar with. Uh, that that's what builds the spiritual muscle because it's it's 
and you see it in people, it's the ability to be rather than to be out there frantically doing. Because no matter how many workshops we go to and how many gurus we go and talk to, the bottom line is uh, it's, it's what we do with that and, and how we are in ourselves. So, and um, I think I, uh, you haven't asked me this, but um, I, I allude to it a little bit uh, in the book and we've talked about it, that the, the tango is a beautiful expression, the dance, the tango, is a beautiful expression of presence. Because you have to be totally tuned into your partner, both of you. One is the leader and one is the follower in order to, 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 to do this dance. You can't drink alcohol or, you know, be not paying attention. You'll just go wrong and you'll look ridiculous. <laughs> in addition to talking about suffering, developing spiritual muscles, you also talk about profound vulnerability and how that invites in a deeper intelligence. When we are in a, a state of profound vulnerability, or let's say a very open state, heartbreak being one of them, when we're very connected with our suffering, I think we enter the still point because we're in a place of acceptance. We're not trying to get out of it. I mean, it's hard to be in that place, but in fact, when I talk about the, the profound intelligence, it's what happens in the still point, because grace only comes in the still point. We, we can't reach out for grace. We await it. You know, it, it comes to us. We receive it. Um, and so the profound intelligence is a deeper uh, type of knowing which comes through the heart. And you can't really learn about it. You know, you can only open yourself to receiving it. And certainly I have felt those occasions several times. And, it, you know, it's not always with, uh, with relationships. We can have these opening experiences frequently, you know, in, in, in life. And, and nature does it to us too, I think. And really learning, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, uh, speaks about this quite a lot and writes about it. It's, it's almost like ho he talks about holding your anger and keeping it warm. And, it, you know, or whatever the feeling is, holding your pain and keeping it warm. It's about acceptance and, and being in it rather than trying to get rid of it. Because, in fact, and Jung was very strong on this too, um, there's a great transcendent power in that because it, it changes if you stay in the, in the situation, it will in fact change. Unbearable as it may be, it will change. But it's hard for us to do that because it's not, it's not pleasant. When you talk about the avoidance um, and how when we try to avoid things in our lives um, and move around things instead of going through them, that it actually prolongs suffering. What do you mean by that? It prolongs it, but it also maybe you know, it doesn't allow us to move through the experience. I think that uh, spiritual muscle is a good expression because it, it gives energy and power to something which is intangible. You have nothing to show for it, really, except to someone else, except that you've been through this experience and somehow you've changed. You've got more substance, spiritual substance. You know, and all the great mystics would have experienced it and talked about it a lot. 
uh, even the, the mystical poetry of uh, Teresa of Avila and, and John of the Cross, two of my most favorite um, writers, they really uh, experienced it, you know, and their union was with God, their love was with God, of course, and Rilke was to his the creative muse, you know, we, whoever it is or whatever it is that we commune with, this is what takes us to that, uh, that place of profoundness. In your book, you talk about the broken heart as being a state of emotion that invites in the divine. Um, can you talk a little more about that? Well, you see, love, uh, you see, love is a human and a divine passion. And the opening of the heart allows the divine aspect to come in because we're surrendering. We're surrendering to a force greater than ourselves and we are allowing in uh, this deeper intelligence. And I think also the other thing that I talk about in the book quite a bit is that when we go through this experience um, and we're in a state of, uh, we're alone, in aloneness, we're without our partners, all the projections come back to us, um, we reconnect with our own divinity. We reconnect with the inner lover. I remember this myself uh, one day because I came to, actually, to the desert of Arizona, which I love. I like the desert uh, in the United States. And I was feeling just empty and alone. And But in the desert, it w- there was nothing there. But it was as though nature kind of came back to me. And I connected with the spirit of the world in, in a strange way. And so I began to realize, well, actually, what have you... You've learned how deep your heart is. You've learned that your heart is capable of such huge love. And that I saw as a gift, which is hard to, to, to do sometimes, isn't it? We find it hard to stay in those moments of not knowing. I mean, I'm not gifted with patience myself, and uh, to wait is not easy, it's not in my nature. But at the same time... Uh, it's it's we tend to want to label everything so we're we're sure about oh this is this and that's that oh you've got this syndrome and oh you've got the other syndrome um and then that says oh okay i've got that syndrome so we we relax but when we stay in the not knowing it's like in my profession uh you know i when people come first they say well what can you do for me and what's wrong with me and um you know, uh, after a while, they begin to understand that uh, I don't know, they don't know, we just are, and we'll see, and it comes. It always comes. Some kind of clarity always comes. Can you explain what you mean by inner wholeness? Yeah, um, well, inner wholeness, I mean, in the Jungian uh, psychological language, the inner marriage, relates to, uh, within each individual, the uh, union of opposites, the union of opposites. So inner wholeness is something that uh, is a process of gradual lifetime unfolding. And uh, the idea is that we come into the world and we need to, to develop the ego, we need to develop the personality and make our way in the world. And then 
as we move on in life, we come to individuate more as a preparation for coming back to the sense of wholeness before we leave. So um, how I write about it in the book is very much looking at how our relationships reflect our spiritual journey and that with each relationship that we have, we're learning something about ourselves because we project onto our partners, generally speaking, aspects of ourselves that uh, we're not yet aware of that are in the shadow. Potential as well as negative. I mean, the, the, the shadow contains unwanted aspects of our personalities, but also potentials. So um, the inner wholeness is when we come to accept those parts in us. They come back home. You know, so we can live with the good and the bad at the same time. We can live with human nature, the vulnerability and the beauty of that. You and I have had several conversations about shadow and the role that shadow plays. Can you talk a little more about this as well? The shadow is a, um, a Jungian concept uh, for the other half or the other side. Um, and a, as I said earlier, it's um, a combination of things we don't want to know about or things we don't like or what we don't want to be um, unwanted aspects, but also what's in potential. It's in the shadow because it's in potential. It hasn't come into being yet. So uh, in our work, in Jungian uh, in psychotherapy, uh, the aim is to make the unconscious conscious and to bring forward the shadow, to bring it, the light of consciousness to the shadow. Uh, the aim is to then to facilitate um, inner harmony or inner ho- the inner wholeness. Um, you see, when we're relating to a person on the outside, everybody's a mirror of us. Everything out in the world is, is an aspect of us. So when we're relating to it, at some level, we're trying to make conscious the unconscious. We're trying to bring shadow in so we understand it. And to, to put it in more concrete terms, uh, what this would be about would be, you know, the things that annoy us in another person. We have to start thinking to ourselves, okay, well, where might I be like that? You know, what is that saying about me? And all right, am I ever jealous? Yeah, no, of course I'm not jealous. Yes, I am jealous. You know, so we can integrate um, the shadow within ourselves. And people who integrate shadow are, are more real. Um, the opposite to the shadow is the persona. I don't want to be too technical here, but the persona is the opposite. The, uh, everybody builds up a persona in life. That's a given. Um, and it's, it's the role we play in life. It's, it's, it's taken from the Greek, you know, of, of the, the, the masks that the Greeks wore in, in the plays, sacred plays. But um, it's, it, it means our role in life, what we take on as... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's me, it's you, the filmmaker, it's me, the therapist. Uh, but then the opposite is the shadow, you know. So the, the brighter the persona, the darker the shadow. That's the point. That the more you identify with the image, the darker the shadow will be. Yeah? And when you integrate the shadow, you're less worried about your role in life and you won't fall apart when you retire and you're no longer the doctor, 
You're just you. Uh, is there anything that you can share with our audience about this, the broken heart and how that relates to the grief that we experience when we lose someone we love? Uh, well, I think that the experience of the broken heart, you see, it's often not understood that we are meant to have our hearts broken. And there is a Sufi saying, shatter my heart, asking God to shatter one's heart, to make room for a new heart, an open heart. So whether the experience comes from uh, heartbreak in a relationship or from heartbreak about your job or you, you lose everything or a bereavement, it's, it leads us to the same place. And the loss of a loved one can throw us into this place as well, um, especially if we've been um, you know, enmeshed or in a very deep relationship where there was a lot of um, um, mutual projection. However, in terms of old, you know, when we lose people that we love and our parents, etc., it does throw us into, again, the deeper place where we have to examine the nature of life and the nature of love and the nature of our existence and our purpose here, really, in order to facilitate people to actually move on because there's such great wisdom in the, in the dying and there's such great wisdom in illness too, you know, because people are having to grapple with uh, life and death issues, you know, and so suddenly it doesn't really matter if the car is blue or red or how much money is in the bank. Uh, it just matters that we have that connection. Can I, I'd like to share this experience. My former husband... Uh, is a doctor, medical doctor, and when he was doing his training, we used to go to a lot of me medical do's, and and um, I met a woman once uh, at one of these do's who was a young doctor, and I always remember this because it struck me. I was about twenty-two at the time, and you know, quite impressionable. Uh, she was distraught. It was a, it was a social occasion. She was distraught. And the bottom line was, she said to me, she said, uh, I've just uh, lost a patient. I've just seen a patient die. And I said, oh, you know, and she said, it's not the death. She said, just before he died, he asked me to hold his hand. And I turned away. I just gave him the morphine. But you could see that that was a huge thing in her, that she just wished that that wasn't how it was, but that was what she'd been taught. So that says it, doesn't it? And it takes courage to be with. And of course, I was very involved in childbirth and still am to an extent. And my first book is all about the, the, the medical management of birth and the, 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 the sanctity of the birth experience and all of that. And when you're present, when a new soul comes into the world or when a soul leaves the world, it's such a privilege. And But the, the calling is to be there without needing to do anything. The, the medical training often is task-orientated. So let's, let's do this, let's do that, let's do the other. And they just want us to be there, you know. Uh, and it's, it, it does take a lot of strength and courage because you have to call on everything you have not to be frightened, not to be whatever. In your book, you really talk about the role of mythology um, a great deal, and also the personal story. Can you talk a little bit more about both 
mythology and the personal story and how those two things are connected? Mythology is very strong in our lives, uh, whether we realize it or not. Uh, uh, Jungians use mythology in their work quite a bit. Um, it symbolizes the human journey because in the struggles of the great uh, um, mythical figures like Zeus, Aphrodite, Athena, all of this, and all their stories, we see reflected symbolically our human journey. And we are archetypally imprinted as human beings to, um, to resonate with these great truths such as love, war, you know, mothers, fathers, the archetype of marriage, you know, there's many of them. And so often we can find uh, within mythology or even with fairy stories, in the book I deal with that quite a lot, uh, that we resonate with particular ones. So that will tell us something of our psychological makeup, but also what we're resonating to, what our story is. And in the book I talk about various um, stories such as The Little Mermaid, which was my favorite, and uh, there's Rapunzel, there, there's lots of them. And, but the significance of it is, in terms of this particular book, is that we live out of stories. We don't realize it often, but we are living stories, and they become belief systems that we live out of. And while we are in those belief systems, we're not available to what we've been talking about, to the presence. We're not available to the inner um, still point. We're not available to the transcendent power of love because they're employed by the story. So if you think you're the little mermaid or if you connect with the little mermaid, then there's a part of you that feels that love is impossible and that you will not be able to find your prince or your other half without giving away your most precious possession because that's what happened with her. So it has a huge role, and I think that, and I enjoyed that part of the book because it talks about how you can find your story, how you can try and go back and look at what your patterns are, and then you can be free of them. You know, you, you can still smile at them, but they don't have power over you because you can say, uh uh, don't go down that road. <laughs> Some of the myths that you talk about seem ancient, um, and some of them seem a little more modern. Can you talk about some of the most typical um, stories that we might see right now in this day and age in our culture? We're living in a, the age of Aquarius that's coming in, as you know. The myth of Chiron and Prometheus is the myth of our time, which is the wounded healer. And the wounded healer is about learning to, um, through our vulnerability and through embracing our wounds and our mortality, which he had to do, to connect with our spiritual selves, to connect with the divine. That, I think, is the myth of our time. Because there's been a huge move, I mean, starting in the 60s, it's now shifting slightly again towards looking at emotional wounds, towards exposing them, towards looking at the unconscious, towards, you know, looking at our, uh, the effect that our childhood has on how we live our lives. And this has, this has in, in some way, um, the negative of it is, it has promoted the tendency to have a culture of woundology where we are identified by our wounds. And we need to move beyond that. 
which is the only reason to go back to the wounds is to transcend them. So we need to go beyond the wounds because we are more than our wounds. And yet our wounds is what we learn from. But we can grow beyond that to compassion, so, uh, which is what my, Karen and Prometheus is. That would be the myth of our time, I think, on an archetypal level, on a more global level. In terms of our own inner journeys, I think we all have little myths around love, um, which we are, uh, as I said earlier, needing to connect with. But that's the broad one, I think, about where we're going on the planet, I feel. You and I talk a lot about the role of story and about how powerful that is. And in hospice, one of the things we see is that people need to have their stories held. And that's one thing that hospice workers do on a regular basis in the process of of supporting life review for people at the end of of life. And I'm wondering, as a therapist, um, what are your thoughts on how the story impacts us uh, in the continuum of our lives and in our dying process? I think that's very interesting. I think that uh, not everybody gets the opportunity to tell their story because some people uh, die alone and some people are isolated more and more today, which shows the importance really of reclaiming this. But I have found uh, in my work and in, in my life and in general that we have a need to tell our story in order to, and have it heard, in order to grow beyond it. Um, it's like, if the story is heard, it's somehow validated. Uh, and I think that, the, absolutely, I think that as people get older, I've noticed with my, uh, you know, my elderly parents, that th- their recollection of their early life, past events, uh, way in the past, is very good. Whereas, you know, the current reality is not as important and that's normal. Um, so I, I think that's right. I think that this is a rounding off. It's a way of rounding off one's life and bringing it to some beautiful place of wholeness again. And it's great to have the opportunity to do it. I think it should be, you know, it should be recognized more. And that, and that when people are talking, the elderly or anybody who's, mentally ill, I have do that in inverted commas, there is always meaning in what they're saying. And Jung uh, wrote about this in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, because he was a psychiatrist and he worked in, um, in a clinic called the Borkholzi and Zurich. And uh, he, when he was a young doctor, he went in and he, there were a lot of patients there um, some very elderly, some not so elderly. And there was one woman there who was pretty mute. She couldn't speak, but she kept doing this, making movements with her hands. And she asked the nurses, you know, what's this? And they said, oh, she's nuts. You know, there, there's no meaning to this. And he thought, no, there is meaning. And he, he didn't let it go until he found somebody who had been there when this woman had been admitted some 40 years previously because she was a very old lady. And the story is, is, is thus. She had been a young woman um, and she was engaged to a shoemaker and he had ditched her on the eve of their wedding. And she had suffered this huge hurt and had broken down. And this was 
the movement of the shoemaker. So you can see the beauty of the psyche that is trying to bring back to this place of wholeness. So there's always meaning. In your book, you talk about the still point that is a pregnant moment where the seeds of the future lie. And you also talk about holding the tension of opposites within. Can you talk a little bit more about the still points and how we hold the tension of opposites within? I love both of those uh, descriptions and, and concepts. When we hold the tension of opposites, or when we are sitting in that awful place, which can feel awful, of not knowing, of getting up in the morning and the reality that we're alone, let's say, or something terrible has happened, is still there, and we haven't died in the night, and we still have to put up with it, and we're still getting up in the morning raw. At a certain point, we enter the still point because it, it is the point of acceptance. And when I talk about the seeds of the future, it is just that we give permission for something to enter. I was talking about this earlier um, also that uh, with Grant that we're so busy sometimes putting out there what we want, creating our own reality, which is something I have issues with, as you know, that we're not listening to what comes in. It's like a radio. How I see it is that we've the radio tuned up, you know, sending out signals. I want this, I want that. But So God can't get in. Grace can't come in. The still point can't come in. But if we stay in that, okay, I'm getting up this morning, my heart is just broken, I'm, I know I'm going to end up crying again today, and uh, I feel awful, I just don't want to see anyone, let me sit with it. Something else can come in. It was a real pleasure to be able to interview you, Benique, and we wish you um, all the best in your and travels back to Dublin and hope to stay connected with you and want to let the audience know that if you'd like to learn more about Benique and her wonderful books and the work that she does, please visit her website at soul-connections.com. You can also go to our website for show notes and more links at camilladare.com. Mm-hmm.